One of the great challenges that we face as Christians is this tension between faith and work. You and I know that we have all been saved by grace through faith apart from our works. And that's great. We're super free. We don't have to work for our freedom. We don't have to do anything to become worthy of God's love. He has already given it to us freely by virtue of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And yet, at the same time, you have passages like John chapter 15 that say, if a tree doesn't bear fruit, it's going to get cut off. So there's this element to the faith where, yeah, you don't have to prove your salvation by trying to earn it. And yet, Scripture paints this picture that says that those who are saved do show forth in service and work. This is one of the great tensions that's posed not just theologically, but it's posed practically for us. I mean, how often do you serve or you're about to engage in an act of service and and you can't help but wonder and feel, gosh, does this affect somehow my standing with God? Again, in your mind, you're so clear in understanding that you can't be saved by what you do, but there's a little bit of something inside of you that says, man, when I'm doing good, I feel good, right? And when I feel good, I feel like it speaks to who I am. There's a tension here. There's a dynamic thing at play when it comes to service. See, but service could also be dangerous, right? Because service played out in the wrong ways could anchor someone's identity, not in who they are, but in what they do. And the moment the doing stops, you forget who you are. We've seen this happen, I'm sure, whether it's here at church or perhaps with family or with friends you notice that there is a stark difference between those who find their security in who they are versus those who are grounded in just what they do. This is the great dilemma of service. And yet at the same time, the answer that the church can pose is not everyone should just not serve. We know this because service is a beautiful thing. When I consider even the way that I got saved, Perhaps as you consider the way that you came to faith in Jesus Christ, it required the service of countless people. How many people in the history of Christendom and the church have given their lives to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the saints in the church that they have reaped the benefits of someone else's service and sacrifice? We know that service is a beautiful thing, but the tension's real. The tension is so real that we got to address it here as a church together. I want to talk about service today. I want to talk about service as scripture talks about service. And the way that I want to approach it today is this. I don't know about you, okay? But maybe some of you in this room today, when you hear that word service, or maybe someone, you know, if, if you've been approached before and someone says, hey, you should serve because fill in the blank, right? You might give them the, I call this the Christian smile. Ah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, I should serve. Yeah, you're right. Oh, but but you give them the Christian smile, and then you give them the Christian response. Let me pray about it, right? But in reality, what are you thinking? Oh, snaps, I don't want to get involved in this, right? Oh, dude, I don't want to serve. What if it's all this crazy stuff that happens and whatnot? And out of fear, you just retreat, and you isolate, right? So today I want to address that service doesn't have to be a daunting thing. In fact, there is a 
comfort that's embedded in the idea of service. And it's a comfort that doesn't involve the people you serve, but it's a comfort that involves those who choose to serve. I want to talk about, first, the comfort of service. And secondly, today, I want to address the challenge that service also inherently holds. Because service is challenging. But again, I don't want to talk about the challenge in terms of just how difficult it is to work. I want to talk about the challenge on a spiritual level as Jesus shows us throughout the scriptures. And to address, starting with the comfort of service today, we're going to go back to a familiar passage and a familiar story that we see in the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles with you today, I want to encourage you to turn to Exodus, okay? The book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. Again, that's Exodus chapter 25 in the Old Testament. Now, as you guys are turning there, I want to paint some context for us today. You will recall that God was saving Israel from an Egypt that placed incredible demands on the people in the form of slavery. Something happened between the end of Genesis where Joseph was with the people of God in Israel, and they were in Egypt, and they had a pretty good relationship. Joe was a high-ranking official. Suddenly, you jump into Exodus. God's people are slaves of the land now. They're doing grunt work. They are under the authority of those who are not their God, who are not their leaders in a foreign land. Egypt as a culture was representative of how the entire world viewed life and their gods at that time. Namely, that their idea of serving their gods and idols was to build and conquer. Back in the ancient Near East, that was a sign that you were a successful nation. If you had more land, more resources, more people, that included slaves. It was an economy and society based on results without a sense of communal well-being. We know how the story goes. God sends Moses, Aaron, and sister. They go into the land as representatives of God. And they save and they deliver the people out of the hands of Pharaoh. And so in Exodus 20, verse 2, you don't have to turn there. This is what God says. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so God delivers Israel away from the slavery of Egypt to himself. Again, because Egypt's idea of service was unbearable because there was an expectation that could never be met by the people of God. I love how one pastor puts it. He says that Egypt's culture of slavery and service was one that always demanded more bricks. More bricks. Lay more bricks. Build more structures. Build more stuff for the leaders and Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt. God steps in and says, stop building for another God who's not yours. I'm bringing you home to the promise. The culture that God brings his people out of, out of was one of a nation driven for conquest that created restlessness. But as we're going to see today, God is going to teach his people something very different about the way he brings service to us. So today, I want to start with my first point. What is the inherent comfort of serving God, of serving his people? And I think what scripture tells us is this. Service is God's provision for us to rest in his meeting place. The comfort of service is this, is that service is God's provision for us to meet in his, for us to rest, excuse me, in his meeting place. Okay, I want you to look down at Exodus chapter 25. I'm going to read from verses 1 and on. Okay? 
This is the word of the Lord. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is a contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. Oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing. Oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Service is God's provision for rest for us to meet with him in his meeting place. Okay, now, when you look at Exodus chapter 25, okay, as I painted the picture of what Israel was doing in Egypt, again, they were building stuff. They were laying bricks in Egypt. God brings them out of Egypt, and they get this command from God. Make me a tabernacle. Bring together your gold, your silver, your bronze, your yarn, your goat skin, your acacia wood. I mean, you know, I was reading this passage again. You know, uh, excuse me, okay? Sometimes when I read the Bible, I read like not like a pastor, <laughs> like a human. I don't know, right? We're all humans, right? I mean, humans are the only people who read, right? But what I'm trying to say is sometimes I read the Bible and I ask questions. I'm like, dang, these dudes just came out of Egypt. How did they have all this stuff with them, right? But they did, right? And so God says, gather your goods, bring them out. You're going to make me a tabernacle. Now, if you're an Israelite who's coming out of Egypt, you got like PTSD going on right now. You're like, we just finished making all these stuff. Pyramids, Giza, all this stuff. And then you're telling us that you brought us out so that we could just make more stuff for another person. Right? It's confusing, right? Because God is in essence asking them to do almost the same thing that they were just doing in Egypt just for a different subject for a different god we just got saved and now we're going back to temple building but there's a key difference that you see in exodus 25 if you look back at verse 8 again this is what god says he says and let them make me a sanctuary that i may dwell in their midst this is a key difference because you see in Egypt, the people of God were making pyramids, were making buildings for even gods who don't even exist. They're not going to dwell there for the well-being or the benefit of God's people. But God says, look, you might be doing what appears to be the same thing, but for a di very different purpose. I'm asking you to serve me and to build me a sanctuary so that I can show up. So that I can be with you. So that I can show you that as your God... I'm not a tyrant who's trying to kill you, who's trying to exercise control and smash you. I'm the sort of God who just delivered you out of Egypt. And I'm asking you to build me a sanctuary so that I can be that sort of God now and forevermore. Service from the beginning was God's idea, not for us to, quote unquote, give God something that he needs. God gave us service as a vessel and as a means so that we could get what we need. That's so different, right? Because whenever we think about service, it's all about what can I do for you? 
What can I give to you? What do I have to do to kill myself and die as I'm preparing all these things to make your life better? God says, uh-uh. That's not how I dreamt of service. To serve in God's economy means, yes, you give, but it's because you never lack. You're always getting something in return, namely God's presence, his being with us. Now, what's very interesting, okay, Exodus is a really fun book until you get to chapter 25 right? It's like, oh, Prince of Egypt, right? Yeah, Moses, you know, all the great stories, right? But Prince of Egypt doesn't have like, okay, now everyone build a temple. You guys ever read the whole book of Exodus? It's like, dude, the latter portion of Exodus is incredibly difficult to read, right? It's like, then you will cut the wood into five cubits and lay it along the side. In fact, can we get the picture up on the screen? Yeah, I I brought... I'm a, there's like a nerd that lives inside of me, and so I need visuals and pictures and, and a lot of things, okay? This is um, from my seminary notes, okay? This is a, a depiction of the tabernacle. Look, and they got exact measurements, right? You got, you got 50 cubits one way, 100 cubits the other, right? It's a rectangle, and there's a tabernacle with acacia wood, incense, lampstand of gold, bronze basin, a screen, right? They got all these things. And then in the instructions, it's crazy. It's like God goes, you're going to make the yarn twisted in this way so that the colors look like this. It's so specific. Man, like, it would make, it, it would, it would make any ministry team sweat, right? What God said, do what? Oh my gosh, right? It's too, too many instructions, right? God is so specific in what he asked for. Now, some people might look at that and go, gosh, God is so demanding. But you got to understand something. Let's say, let's say the president of Korea right, was like, I'm going to visit New Philadelphia, Shilin. Right? Dang, that's, that's crazy, right? Just imagine that, you know? President Moon, right? he looks like a boss, right? Anyone with white hair, right, and like, you know, wise looking, you know, old age, they they look like a boss, right? Let's just say we heard that they were going to come. I mean, we're probably going to be like, okay, Korean Secret Service, what do we need to do, right? Like, what brand of water does he drink, you know? Does he like his seat warm to a particular temperature? Does he need a massage chair? Does he like the room smelling a certain way, right? When people of importance come somewhere... You set up the meeting place so that we can tend to their needs. So that as they come to this meeting place, we could be of service in some way to one another. Now, but here's where the analogy fails. The analogy analogy fails because when people, when humans meet together, we serve each other, do we not? Let's just think about even a simple friendship. You meet at a coffee shop. No one meets at a coffee shop going, oh, I can't wait to be used. Wow, I love it when my friend asks me to do all these things and, and they, don't, they don't ask me what I need. No one says that, right? God does. The only requirement that God makes is this. Just make the space okay for me to be there. Because I'm God. I'm super holy. Okay, he doesn't say that in scripture. But he communicates that, okay? I'm holy. I'm unlike 
anyone or anything you've seen before. And Israel knew that. What kind of God would part the sea? What kind of God would bring in the locusts? What kind of God would bring darkness? What kind of God does these things? I think they got the picture. So then they hear God say, make my tabernacle like this. They're saying, I get it. God lays the condition of what the space needs to look like, and he says, and then afterwards, we're both going to show up. You're not going to give me anything I need. As though God needed anything. God doesn't need anything from us. Scripture talks about this. When you read passages like Psalm 50, God says, I made the earth. What kind of sacrifice would you offer to me that I need? All the earth is already mine. God says, I don't need what you bring. God says, but you need me. All I ask for you to do is create the space. And when you show up, I'll give you rest. I will lift the burden off of your shoulders. And you will know once again that I am deliverer God who comes not to be served, but to serve And doesn't that remind you of a passage in Mark 10, 45, when our Lord Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what is taking place in the tabernacle. In fact, when you look at the tabernacle as well, there is a lot of symbolism that takes place in this. And among one of the most symbolic things that is taking place in the creation of the tabernacle is that this is actually a miniature figure version of what the Garden of Eden probably looked like. Not specifically, right? You know, like gold basins and all that stuff, but in its representation. Some of you guys may have the ESV study Bible, and I want to just read for you what the study Bible says in the notes section on Exodus 25. It says, the tabernacle, like the Garden of Eden, is where God dwells, and various details of the tabernacle suggest it is a mini Eden. These parallels include the east-facing entrance guarded by cherubim, the gold, the tree of life, which is represented by the lampstand, and the tree of knowledge, which is the law. Thus, God's dwelling in the tabernacle was a step toward the restoration of paradise, which is to be completed in the new heaven and new earth. God asked his people, to serve, quote-unquote, just so that they could set up space that would, at the time of Exodus, remind them of what the garden was like. But for us today, when we talk about the tabernacle, it's to remind us of the new heavens and the new earth that's to come. Not always, but when you look at the beginning and the end of a book, you can get a good picture of the story. When you look at the beginning and the end of Scripture and the middle, you will notice that there's a stark difference. In the middle of the entire Bible, in the middle of Scripture, God is not always present with His people. The presence of God is the very thing that people are fighting to get. That's why it's such a big deal for the Jews when the temple gets destroyed over and over again. Because they feel like if the temple is gone, if the tabernacle is not there, then there's no place for God to come and dwell with His people, which is considered a curse. But when you look at the bookends of Scripture, when you look at Eden, and when you look at heaven, there is one thing that is different from the middle, and that is God is fully present with His people. And so for God's people to serve and to build a tabernacle was in effect to invite God into a meeting place, not where they're going to be bullied and bossed around, but where their burdens would be lifted. That changes the way we think about service today. 
Something's not okay if we are invited to serve and you feel burdened. Now, that could come from a lot of different places. It could be from a structure. It could be from different things. But ultimately, when we as the people of God sense burden in our service, it says something's not right in here. And let me remind you, when we enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Jesus talks about how his yoke is not a yoke of slavery. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, when you get attached to me, you will know that my yoke is light and my burden is easy. There's a reason for that. We often approach our relationship with God as though he demands or needs something from us. When we ingrain that picture of God into our hearts and into our minds, we make God not God. Y'all got to hear me on this, okay? When you approach God in the realm of service and you say, God, you need me to do this. You've just turned God into an insecure character. You've turned God into this, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Billy, you're not, you're not, you're not, oh my gosh, you are not intercession prayer 24-7? <gasps> then who's going to take care of their needs? Oh my gosh, you're not setting up chairs? Oh, then, then how am I going to show up? See, we often make this mistake of thinking that God needs these things when all God is asking for us to do is to show up. He says, I'll take care of you. That's who I am. I am the one who comes to comfort. I am the one who comes to take care of all these things. And so in our realm, in the human realm, what does this look like? How does service then become a place where you lift burdens and you make the yoke easy? It looks like this. After service today, service team is going to go around and they're passing drinks around. They have snacks, pre-cut. <laughs> and they already put the toothpicks on the snacks. As I grab for one of those snacks and I put it into my mouth, I'm reminded of the banqueting feast that one day my Lord will host for all of us together. Amen. We don't want to walk into service. When I first week at New Philly Shillim, the entire welcoming team. Hey! Okay, that's not what their voice sounded like, okay? It felt like that, though. It was overwhelming. It was so encouraging. You say, welcome to New Philadelphia, Shilim. And I said, I wonder if this is what it feels like to be welcomed by my God. Service, my friends. The end goal of whatever you do. You could be a graphic designer for the church. And you're thinking, gosh, I'm just stuck behind my computer. You know what you're doing? You're making a way for somebody to read that announcement or to read that graphic. And it might be for an event. And they think, man, this church does graphics well. I'm going to show up. And you fast forward three years and they got saved. Because of a graphic. Because you invited them to rest through the rest that you've received in serving somebody else. Service in God's economy was not designed to create restlessness. 
It was designed to create rest for the soul. Now, another disclaimer. Rest in Scripture's terms is not the absence of work. Did you know that our God works? That's why we got Genesis 1. We got days 1 through 6. But he also has day 7 where he rests. He pauses because he says, I'm done, and it's good. See, one of the reasons why I believe Scripture paints that picture of six days of work and one day of rest is to actually model for us the true goal of what rest is. It is not to get away from work. It is to trust God in His presence. So I'll put it this way. Rest is not the absence of work. It is the presence of God. You know what I'm talking about, right, friends? Look, you work so hard Monday through Friday, right? You do work stuff for your job. You do church stuff. And then on Saturday, sometimes you're just like, I just want to veg. I want to Netflix. I want to watch the new season of Stranger Things. It's no longer new, right? <laughs> right? What happens? You watch. You do marathon, right? You buy all the snacks, right? I love Korea. Ten steps away from my apartment is a convenience store. Right. You, you do all that, and what happens? You go to bed at night, and you're still restless. Because all you did was stop working, but you didn't say, God, can you walk in through the door of my heart and fill me with your presence? Because you see, the way that God serves us as we serve him, quote, unquote, again, right? He lifts burdens. He kills anxiety. He lets those things come to cease because God is the one who deliver us, delivers us in the midst of all the things that take place. That might mean that he keeps us in certain situations, but he's always reminding us, just like the Sabbath, I rest to show you that when you don't work, I work for you. Service, my friends, in that sense, is never designed to be a burden. And that's the comfort that comes. We know this to be true even in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. What Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, another important 3.16, this is what he says. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? See, Old Testament, people had to make this. They had to make the tabernacle to invite the presence of God. In the new covenant, the amazing thing is that all of a sudden, God says, you don't have to build for me anymore. I'm going to build myself in you. So that you will know that the service that's represented by the temple was not something that was supposed to kill you. But I'm here to live in you. This is what service does. I mean, when we're truly connected to the heart of service, and it is life-giving let me tell you, right, sometimes your body can be dying and failing you, right? I see this every year, like when people will host like VBSs, right? right? I, don't, I know we don't do VBS here at New Philly, okay? But back in my old church, right, VBS was like crazy, right? I love it. The kids come into church, they go, oh my, BBS, right? Because they can't say V, right? BBS, yeah, right? And I look at the volunteers, they're crazy. They stay up like past midnight. And, like, they do all the stuff that I would never do, right? They're, like, 
painting like backdrops and like crumpling construction paper so that it looks like boulders and like you know they do all these set design all these things they're creating curriculum they're making beads and crafts and they do all this stuff and afterwards they're like oh so tired oh but i can't wait for the kids to come and meet jesus it's amazing it's amazing how at the heart of service sometimes when you find the life that it provides it doesn't keep you from serving. It actually makes you thrust yourself more into it. And that's the comfort of service. Is that you actually find rest for your soul. I remember so many days early in ministry, meeting tons of people, right? And other pastors would tell me, man, you're, you're meeting too many people. Stop. Like, you, you, you're like going to kill yourself. But I remember thinking to myself, and, and I would tell them, I love doing this. I love it because they come to me and they go, wow, Pastor Billy, thank you for X, Y, Z. And I'm going, no, don't thank me. I want to thank you. Because when I get to serve you, I actually see God's service coming alive in me. He's meeting me. He's making my heart come alive. And I think the goal is to find that sweet place of rest in the midst of what you do. So that's the comfort of service. Like I mentioned, service doesn't only pose a comfort, it also poses a very important challenge. The challenge that I think Scripture provides for us is this, is that the challenge of Christian service is to serve those who don't deserve it. At the heart of Christian service, the most difficult thing about it is not the work that's involved. The most difficult thing is that God calls us to serve those who are unservable who are undesirable, who we deem as unworthy or too fallen. Where do I get this from? If you got your Bible still in front of you, I want you to turn into the New Testament. I'm going to look at Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. When you're there, let me hear you say, I'm there. All righty. I want us to look. Let's look at verses 32 and on. It says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. At the heart of the Christian ethic, at the heart of the Christian message, it's not a message that says God serves those who deserve to be served. If you go back again to the story of Israel in Egypt, there was nothing about the Israelites. I mean, even historians who write books about the Israelites, right? They may not detail all the miraculous accounts and so forth. But when they talk about how this nation Israel somehow right, became the Jewish people, and they were delivered out of places like Egypt and so forth, they say there was nothing special about them. There was nothing about them. 
in the world's eyes that would make it seem that their Christian God or the Jewish God, Yahweh, would come and deliver them because they had some very important purpose, at least in the eyes of the world. And there's something so significant about that that speaks truth to us today. You and I here today are not the recipients of God's grace because we pray so well. Because we have like the holy glow, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Some people, right? You just, you look at them and you go, man, they're so holy, right? God didn't look at us and be like, oh, my child is so holy. Come join my family. God, when he looked upon earth, saw devastation. He saw a lot of people who wanted to do nothing with him. And the only group of people who thought that they were worthy enough to be in God's presence, God, in the form of Christ, looks at them and says, you guys are all screwing it up. The religious leaders and the Pharisees. You think I'm here to serve those who are clean? No, I'm here for the sick, the broken, and the destitute. And because we as a people were saved, not when we're great and we're awesome. See, the world thinks being a Christian means like, hey, hey, look at me. Read my Bible 23 hours a day. The other hour, I'm interceding for the rest of the world, for sinners as yourself, right? You, people think, right? Like, that's, that's what it means to be a good Christian, right? You just always do the right thing at the right places, at the right times. You don't smoke. You don't drink. You don't do any of these things. We know that that's not the case. Because God did not come to save those who are safe. God came to save the lost. And to lead us in this thing called relationship with him. So here's the thing. When you and I come to salvation, we all of a sudden, we're part of this like really cool new family. Wow, I'm a Christian. We're believers. And we start doing very good Christian things. You serve. You join small group. You read your Bible. You pray. You do all these things. And inevitably, at some point, you know what starts to happen? You look at your old friends. You look at people who used to like roll with, you used to love, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, the Bible says, don't go near people like that, right? Where does it say that in the Bible? It doesn't, right? But you feel that way. You feel like all of a sudden, your job and your role is to just, Become this holy person on your own. And yet the model that Christ gives to us in Luke chapter 6 is this. Just as I have loved my enemies. Go and love those. Go and serve those who don't deserve your service. Because you didn't deserve mine either. And yet you got it. In fact, if you jump back in the passage a little bit and you look at verse 27, there's another exhortation that Jesus gives early on. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And you can't stop to think, isn't that what Jesus himself went through? Did he not love his enemies? Did he not do good to those who hated him? Did he not bless those who cursed him? Does he not pray for those who abuse him? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Did Jesus not get struck on the cross, on his way to the cross? And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Jesus, on his way to the cross, lost all of his garments. 
loving his enemies. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We call this the golden rule. Give others what they don't deserve. Serve the undeserving, just as you yourself have received the undeserved service of God. Friends, I think when we get to the heart of service, we talk about the challenge. We talk about how the church grows and expands in love. This passage brings so much light. Because if we just merely become a community who love those who are lovable, it means we are departing further and further away from the very message that we believe and hold to. The gospel, the cross, is not a message that says we are here for the holy elite. Christian service is not reserved for those that we look at and say they deserve it. This entire subject of service begs the question, who then, who then is worthy of it? The only person worthy of service, to be quite frank with you, is our Lord Jesus himself. And yet the only person in all the earth, in all of history, who deserves service came and chose not to be served, but to serve, that his church today would be reminded that the model we uphold is that even if people hurt you, even if people wrong you, you wrestle and say, how can I get myself to serve that person? How can I bless them? Even when it feels like all they've done is curse me. Because otherwise, not because I say so, but because the scriptures say, we are no different from the world we say that we are not. I don't know about you today, church, but does someone come to mind for you? And if that's you, I want to assure you of something. And this is, this is a safe thing for us to venture into. I don't think we've truly understood the heart of service until you have someone in your mind or in your heart and you say, God, I would never serve that person. And Jesus says, that's the point. Some of us, we pray, right? God, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to repeat 2 Corinthians 12 over myself. Paul said there was a thorn in his flesh. God, that person is a thorn in my flesh. Remove them, right? Get them away from me because if you don't get them away, I'm going to get myself away from them. I'm not going to serve them. And sometimes Jesus comes and he says, no, I'm keeping that person there for a reason. I'm teaching you something. I'm showing you something. And it's at that place when the wrestle is real and the person you feel like you can't serve and you shouldn't serve is still standing in front of you. And you ask God, so what, God? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve this person? Jesus comes and says, you could start the way I did. Get a towel. 
and wash someone's feet. Serve them at their most basic need. Not out of just compliance. Because there's a difference between complying with God and obeying God. To comply is to simply do. Your motivation doesn't matter. But Jesus says, I ask that you obey. I ask you serve those who don't deserve it. Because at the end of that road, friends, see, obedience is not just a matter of you did what God told you to do. God designed obedience so that when we do what he says, we would reap the reward behind what he asks us to do. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. See, when we serve, we're not even serving with our own strength. Peter makes it clear. You serve others with the strength that God supplies. And let me tell you, the sort of strength that God supplies to serve someone else is to get your hands dirty between someone's toes. So that as they receive what they don't deserve, they might also be the recipients of the love that we never deserve. There are far too many people who are easily able to discern what is right and wrong. Friends, it's not difficult to look at something and say, that's wrong, or that person's wrong, and that's good, or that person's good. Everyone has a moral compass. But as believers, we have something more. Because the presence of Christ lives in us, we have the ability not only to discern, but to step in and shine the light of Christ in places that you would never think deserve to be there. We have the due responsibility to step into places. And even if you don't feel like it's your job to clean up someone's mess, to give someone what they don't and what they shouldn't get, we have the capacity to say, how can I serve here? Because when we do, friends, when you tap into the pain of serving someone who doesn't deserve your service, you actually tap in to the greatest strength that Christ, I believe, has given to all of humanity. And it is a strength of identity. You have the ability then to say, you think you took from me by causing me pain and causing me hurt, but I serve you to tell you you've taken nothing from me. I only have more to give. The freest people on earth are not those who have retribution and revenge and these things as their agenda. They're enslaved by it. The freest people on earth are those who can endure pain, loss, and hurt, and still at the end of it say, it hurts. But you haven't taken away my greatest source of joy, my source of life. And let me give that source to you right now because it'll never run dry. And his name is Jesus. 
That's why in the Proverbs, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. What is he rewarding you with? The satisfaction of having him. You're not satisfied in God until you recognize that he's all you got. When people start taking stuff away, it never feels good. But there's a hidden gem in that corner, folks. Because when all you're left with is God, you can confidently say, take it all. I have all I need. That is a satisfaction that comes. And so today, church, I want to just invite up the keys real quick, you know. And I feel like it's important for us to respond. I don't want this to just be a word. I don't want this to just be a message. I want this to land on all of our hearts. Friends, because again, this is what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Who's God tugging at your heart right now? Who's he bringing to mind? Yeah, I'm not saying this, friends, to make you feel guilty. God understands that we don't always have in our hearts the desire or the capacity to love those who have wronged us. And yet, because we look at Scripture today, Scripture tells us that when we serve those who don't deserve it, because we are serving as God designed, we're actually going to find rest at the end of that road. You're not just meeting with that wrongdoer when you serve them. You're meeting God. You're becoming His hands and His feet. You're becoming His likeness. And although you take on the same pain that Jesus himself endured and experienced, you also experience the same joy that he experiences on the cross. Hebrews 12 tells us this, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Even in Jesus' most excruciating hour of pain, Scripture tells us that there was an inherent joy that he experienced at that place. Friends, don't run. Don't hide don't feel guilty right now. Just pray. Say, God, Holy Spirit, who's that person? And in fact, I bet God has already brought that person to mind. And if that's you, I want you to just pray for the next minute or two. Say, Lord, Lord, don't don't ask him, what do you want me to do? Just begin to ask God this question. God, how do you feel about that person? When you look at that person from heaven as Abba Father, Daddy God, merciful and gracious, loving, kind and tender, how do you see that person? Because compassion has to move us. As compassion moved Christ towards us as well. Let's pray. Just spend the next minute or two. God, give me that heart today. God, give me that heart today. Lord, give us that heart here.
get a sense right now as you're, as you're praying. There might be some of you in this room and you're saying, I just can't. I just can't. It's, it's Pastor Billy. You're asking too much. Jesus, you're asking too much of me. Oh, I just want you to know that Jesus is not intimidated by that response. He invites that. He says, give it to me. Bring it to me. It's okay. I'll take that honesty. I'll take your heart. I'll take that truth of where you're at right now. And I, and I just sense that Jesus is still offering you that place with him. Not for you to look at what you have to surrender. But I just sense Jesus coming to you to draw near. And he's saying, I want you to just keep looking at what I surrendered for you. I want you to be moved out of my compassion, out of my surrender. I gave up heaven to be with you. To just focus your gaze on that cross right now. Lord, move us. Move us in that service today. Move us in that, Lord. We found rest, God, through your restlessness. We found rest, God, through your pain. Lord, give us the heart, mind, soul of Christ today. Jesus, I just pray right now for our community. Lord, and, and Father, I, I don't know where everybody at is at here, but you do. You know, God. And I just ask right now, divine healer, God, Emmanuel, who is with us, I just ask that as you stay and you stand with us in our pain, in our sorrow, in our hurt, in our grieving, in our loss, I ask, Lord, I know, Lord, that when you come, you're not just demanding us to do things, but you're drawing us near. You're sitting next to us. You are understanding our hurt. But Lord, I pray that as you sit with us and as we look to you, we wouldn't just focus in on our pain alone, but that we would put our gaze on you. That as we are reminded of your hurt, as we're reminded of what you gave to be with us, Lord, that that would genuinely move us in compassion to do what you ask us to. So come, Lord. Come, Lord, and let us be a house. Let us be a church that looks at service, not as a requirement, but as a life-giving tool. A life-giving tool, but also a life-bringing tool for us who give to those who need you. I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the reminder. Thank you most of all for your presence that remains with us. Lord, I pray that as we go throughout this week, you would continue to remind us of your love, that it would move us from glory to glory. We pray all these things, Jesus, in your mighty name. All God's people say, amen and amen. All righty.